Open your Bibles, though, to the book of Jonah. We're going to get started, the book of Jonah, and uh, in chapter number three. My brother Samish, who, by the way, I appreciate the message very, very much, and I'm going to allow that at a conference like this, the majority of people would know pretty much about the story of Jonah, so that'll save us some time. I won't have to go into a lot of details, and we're going to begin our reading with the very last verse of chapter number three. That's where we're going to begin reading and then go into the rest of the book or chapter 4. He mentioned a while ago about uh, people moving around while the preaching going is going on. I was in a meeting and an elderly preacher, dear, dear man of God, was preaching and he told about uh, a time that he was preaching years before and um, he noticed a lot of movement while he was preaching, and he was just up to here with it. So a young man got up right about down in here and started walking out, and he just had enough. So he called him down and told him, young man, you get back here and sit down. The young man turned around and looked at him and kept going. I told you to sit down. I'm the man of God, and you know how that goes and things. So told him to sit down. The young man just kept going. And so he made a statement or two and then went back to preaching, and when the service is over, a lady came up to him and said, that young man you was uh, calling out there to sit down is my son. And I want you to know I don't appreciate the way you treated him. And you may not know it, but my son was kicked in the head by a mule when he was a smaller boy. And he's living with the after effects of that. And he said, well, thank you very much, ma'am. I appreciate that. So he said, the reason I told you that, I just figure from then on, anytime anybody gets up when I'm preaching, they probably got kicked in the head by a mule. And so uh, you want to be sympathetic about that kind of situation. Let's stand together, if you don't mind, for the reading of the Word of God. We're in verse number 10 of Jonah, chapter 3, and then we're going to read right into chapter number 4. Jonah, chapter 3, and verse 10. Now, by the time we come to verse 10, Jonah has preached in Nineveh, quite a process that finally got him there, as you know. But he has preached in Nineveh, and Nineveh repented. The people of Nineveh, a great city, a city of a hundred and approximately 120,000 souls. And they repented. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was very angry and he prayed unto the Lord and said I pray thee O Lord was not this my saying when I was yet in my country therefore I fled unto Tarshish for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil therefore now O Lord take I beseech thee my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm 
when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than sixscore thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? And with that, we come to a strange conclusion to the story of Jonah. Father, we want to thank you now for this time together. Thank you for what we have just heard and how I, I know as we sat here and listened to the preaching that so many times we can relate to precisely what was said, your patience, your long-suffering, your ways. And in preaching at home through the book of Second Peter right now, I'm reminded that there were scoffers that said that the Lord would not come. And here it is 2,000 years approximately since Peter wrote those words and you have not come. And so we are reminded once again that while things seem to go on as normal, we are excited about the fact that Jesus not only will come, He must come. And we anticipate the coming of our Lord. And we pray now that you would bless our time here in the Word. How important it is while we wait for the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How important it is that we labor for you with a proper outlook, with a proper mindset, with a proper attitude. I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us now, and I pray that you'd get glory to yourself. And thank you for your precious word in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. you may be seated. You would think, wouldn't you, that a whale's belly experience like Jonah had would forever change a man. You would think that it would. And if you haven't read it lately, go back and read it again. Not now, but some other time, go back and read the story again. And you would think if a man lived through that to tell about it, he would forever be changed. We sure expected change from Jonah in chapter 2 when he is in the belly of that whale and he is crying out to the Lord, and he is describing his distress and the circumstances under which he then existed. And he cried out to God as he was there in the deep and thought that it was the end. Well, he did change. When he came out of that belly's, uh, whale's belly, he did change. He changed direction. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. The Bible says quite different than his first response to God's call. He did go to Nineveh. So he did change direction. He changed his activity. He went to the city of Nineveh and he cried out to Nineveh that in 40 days the city would be overthrown and that they should repent. However, there's 
one thing about Jonah, though he had passed through this horrifying experience, that had not changed. And that was his attitude. His attitude had not changed. Once a man was going to establish a business of some sort and he asked an expert on the matter, he said, as I go into this city and I begin my business, he said, what are the three most important things that I need to know? And the man answered him, the expert did, and said, location, number one, number two, location, and number three, location. And I would say if we looked at this account and we see what God is telling us about serving Him, I think God might be saying to us, I'll give it to you in three parts. Attitude, attitude, attitude. You see, attitude has to do with our mental posture. We're big into posture, at least we should be, because our body language or our physical posture says a lot about us. And it is speaking whether our mouth is moving or not. Our body language, our very physical posture is speaking all the time. But we have a mental posture. We have a mental position. It is a disposition. And what we see here is God speaking to a man about his mental posture, the disposition that he had. And everybody in this room knows it's important. You know it if you're a parent. I reflect back on my own mind and I was uh, raised the fifth of six children in our family. My dad was a farmer and we were raised on the farm and I was again the fifth out of six children. They came in two sets. There were, two, uh, there were uh, three born, my two brothers and my sister, uh, two years apart and then a space of six years and then three more of us born two years apart. And I was born in that second set between uh, two sisters, one two years older than me and one a year and a half younger than me. And they are the reason for most of the emotional scars that I carry in my life to this very day. And so I was raised between my two sisters and I remember, I remember clearly an incident where it was uh, after supper and the farm chores were all done. We'd milk the cows and fed the livestock and did all the things that we did would to God that everybody got to be raised that way in America. But anyway, we'd finished the chores and supper was over and I was going to do what I normally did when I had the occasion, that is get my basketball, go out in the yard and play basketball by myself. And I got the basketball and I'd only dribbled a couple of times on my way out to where I played basketball, where my goal was. And my mother, as she was wont to do, said, Sam, before you play basketball, she always had something else to do. It's like, I'm against my kid having any fun. That's the way it seemed to me that she was saying. So she said, uh, before you go play basketball, you go help your sister take the clothes off the line. Now, if you know anything about manhood at all, that is not a pleasant uh, chore or a task, and especially help my sister who had spent all the time I was doing chores in front of the mirror in the bathroom, checking her eyelids and all that kind of stuff. I don't know what all they did in there, but anyway, and so go help your sister. So I said, okay, and I put down my basketball. Well, I put it down pretty hard. It bounced about 20 feet in the air. I put it down so hard. 
And I threw the basketball down. I grabbed a basket. And I went marching out there where the clothes were strung out on the line for drying purposes. And I went out there with my sister. And she was smirking because I had to help her. And I was calling her a dummy as soon as I was out of the range of my mother. And I go out there and I start jerking the clothes off the line. And I throw them in the basket. And I get it done in a hurry, and I'm dragging the clothes in, and some of them fall off in the grass, and I put them back in. And my mother is watching through the window uh, in her kitchen about all of this, and she decided it would be a good thing to get my father involved in this. And so my dad meets me at the porch there, and I'm just asking you, what do you think my dad said? Well done, thou good and faithful son. Thou hast done as thy mother did bid thee. Enter thou into the joy of thy sport. Now, if you think he talked something like that, and he was a man of the Bible, uh, but if he, you think he talked something like that, you don't understand anything about my dad. And I think it might have been two weeks before I ever saw another basketball, you know, and my dad laid the law down on me. And so I wonder, what is my dad's problem? My mother said, go help your sister. I helped my sister take the clothes off the line, not a man's chore, but I did it anyway. And I brought the clothes in. I have done everything my mother said to do. Why is my dad on my case? And why do I feel like I might pass from this life just any time real soon? Why am I feeling like that? What was my dad's problem? You know what my dad's problem was. He didn't want me just to do what I was told to do. He wanted me to do it with the right attitude. And the attitude with which I've carried out the chore was as important to my father as the act of carrying out the chore. And we understand that. Now we come back to our account and Jonah was told to go preach in Nineveh. Did he go preach in Nineveh? He did. Did he preach what he was supposed to preach at Nineveh? He did. Were there results from the preaching that he preached at Nineveh? There were results as a result, uh, or, or as a, as a, the result of him going to Nineveh and doing what God said to do. But as we read the fourth chapter, we know that something still is not right, don't we? I mean, it's very evident and it's very obvious. But I want you to remember tonight that Jonah's story is a long time past. It's history. Nothing is going to change about it. And we really haven't gathered that we might pass judgment upon Jonah. We have rather gathered understanding that God has not only recorded and preserved this inspired word, but God means for this account to pass judgment on us. And that's why we assemble. And that's why we come together. And that's why we look into the Word of God. Not so we might pass judgment upon the failures of the past, the failures of Israel and the failures of David when he sinned and the failures of this one and Simon Peter and his problems and all of that. No, we have gathered so that the Word of God might pass judgment on us. And I want to talk to you for a few moments tonight about not only doing what we're supposed to do in serving the Lord, but remembering that it is important to God the attitude or the mental posture or the disposition that is ours as we carry out the work of God. Now, as we go to our account, we understand clearly that God and Jonah did not share the same attitude about the fate of Nineveh. They were not on the same page, not at all. Now, he was a prophet. Jesus called him a prophet. That settles that once and for all. This is one of God's prophets. But he and the God for whom he was to speak were not of the same mindset. They were not of the same mental disposition towards the city of Nineveh. 
If you look down at verse number 10, you see that God saw the repentance and the fear that was in the people of Israel. And the Bible says that God saw their works and that they turned away from their evil and God repented of the evil that He had said that He would do unto them and He did it not. So Jonah went in and said that in 40 days the city is going to be destroyed and there was a moving of conviction from God that came into that city and they repented. And you know the story. They repented from the least of them all the way to the king. I mean, there was no one unaffected in the city of Nineveh, this great city. The Bible calls it a great city. And so it was a great city. It was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. One of, at one time, one of the most notable cities of the entire world. And this city now is humbled before God. And they repent of their sins. And the Bible says that God repented of the evil. I think it's always good to stop and mention, you know, that uh, throughout the Word of God, we see that God repented here and God repented there. And just to make sure that we're thinking right about the repentance, well, the repentance of the people of Nineveh and the repentance of God weren't exactly the same. In other words, if we put it like this, we could say it like this, God repents and man repents. But God does not repent like man repents. They are not the same thing. So that the city of Nineveh, let's use our imagination, was heading this way, headstrong in sin and rebellion against God. It was a vile place, a corrupt city. You know that if God singled it out and said in 40 days, I'm going to destroy this city, you can just let your imagination go and whatever vile, perverse, wicked thing that you can imagine perpetrated by human beings was taking place in the city of Nineveh. And God said, it is so offensive to me that I will take this city out and destroy this city. And yet the people repented of their sin. Well, that means they quit going that way and they start going this way. Whereas they were going headstrong in rebellion against God, now they came to God in humility and in repentance and so they completely changed directions. Now let me just say this. God does not flip-flop. Man does. I said man does. How many times does he follow through the Bible and you read the history of the nation of Israel and, and God dealt with them? I mean, for example, the book of Judges and they're doing wrong and God deals with them and they get right and then we read on and now they're doing wrong and then they get right and then they get uh, wrong again and then they get right again. And we look at that and shake our head and say, what a pathetic situation, the people of Israel. But as we stop and let the Word of God be a mirror and we look at ourselves in the Bible, we see that we have walked with God and then we've turned against God and we flip flop back and forth and God never does but God does it's like God does have a way that he deals with people when they are in rebellion and a way that God deals with people when they're in obedience and so God doesn't move back and forth but when people are in rebellion against God here's how God's going to deal with them in judgment and when people are humble and right with God here's how God deals with them so did Nineveh repent? Yes, they did. Did God repent? Yes. But God doesn't repent like man repents. And when men repented, then God said, okay, then I can deal with you here. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to forgive your sin. I'm going to forgive your iniquity. I'm going to forgive your paganism and your idolatry. And God said, I'm going to forgive that. And when they repented, God indeed did forgive. And he declared, or it is declared in his word, that God exercised mercy. Listen to this. This is in verse number 2 of chapter 4. He exercised mercy and slowness of anger and graciousness and great kindness. And it pleased God to spare the people of Nineveh. 
we ought to just stop right now, actually, and just say, oh, God, not only did you do that for Nineveh, you've done that for me. You're a merciful God, and you're slow to anger, and you're gracious, and your kindness is everlasting. Oh, the goodness of God. So God forgave. But look in chapter 4 and verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. <laughs> I mean, it's almost unthinkable. God saw fit and was pleased to wipe away the sins, hold it, that were against him, not Jonah. These sins of Nineveh were against him. And somebody says, well, yeah, but don't forget the Assyrians have been the enemies of Israel and, and they had made life hard for Israel and they had tortured and afflicted people and such as that. And I'm well aware of that. But I also understand that God is at work here and this man has been called of God to be his mouthpiece and his spokesman and to be his prophet. And the prophet is not on the same page with God because the faith that God has for Nineveh upon their repentance causes Jonah, watch this, to be displeased exceedingly. Now, if it says that he is displeased, we know that he might have been saying, well, man alive, I wish that wouldn't have happened, but it did. That's the way God is. He's gracious and slow uh, to anger and merciful and kind, but I just assumed they hadn't got saved. Well, it wasn't like that. N no, the Bible says he was displeased exceedingly. I'm talking about he's kicking the dirt, friend. He's upset. He's mad. He's fuming. He's stomping. And when the Bible says he was angry, we can understand what angry means. But do we understand what very angry means? This guy is livid. So we got to read it right here and understand that he was displeased exceedingly with the fact that God had worked his purpose and will in forgiving a wicked city. And, and that he was not only exceedingly uh, displeased, but he was very, very angry. This man livid, furious, over the top. Over the edge, this man was one mad preacher. And notice what he says in verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, listen to this blowhard. Verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I'd love to walk up on that scene and said, so you want to die? Yes. And so, oh. I'm just furious that God saved them. I knew this. He's merciful. He's kind. That's why I didn't want to go in the first place. That's why I ran away. I knew if I go preach to them, God won't give me the pleasure of seeing the destruction. If those heathen repent, God will forgive them. And that's why I took off running. I didn't want to see the repentance of them. i just soon die. Well, you don't want to die very bad. What do you mean? We was down there in the belly of that whale. That would have been a great opportunity to die. When you had a great opportunity to die down there, what were you doing? You were crying out to the Lord. Go read it yourself in chapter 2. He uttered this incredible prayer, and he's crying out to God, and he's pleading for help and deliverance and the mercy of God. And so Jonah now is very angry, and he is saying he wants to die, but do you think he really wanted to die? I'm here to tell you he didn't really want to die, or he'd have been okay to die when he was in the bottom of that ocean in the belly of that whale and he's crying out and he's saying I'm so angry I would just assume that God take me away and take my life that's how furious and how angry he was well I would say he's got an attitude problem if it pleased God to deliver an entire city that turned to him and that is the pleasure of God to do that according to his kindness his gracious ways, 
His long suffering and His mercy. If God, it pleases Him, it's His pleasure to forgive them, then shouldn't the servant of God be pleased as well? Yes, He should, but He has anything but. So God says, Jonah, I'm going to teach you something about yourself. And we do need to be taught about ourselves. And we don't often know ourselves like we think we know ourselves. And so God is going to give him a lesson. And what God is going to do in verse 4 through 11 is God's going to reveal to Jonah and to us the specific nature of his ungodlike attitude. I think God's going to put his finger on the specific nature of Jonah's attitude and what was wrong with it. Notice with me here in verse number 4. Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth, and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. All right, now, I want you to notice here that Jonah goes outside the city and he prepares himself a booth there and, and while he's there outside the city just hoping for destruction and hoping for the ruin, hoping he can see the fire fall. Huh? Hoping he can see Sodom and Gomorrah reenacted. Hoping he can see the utter destruction of this city. God causes a gourd to grow up, a vine that would produce a gourd. It grows up. And it's, it's a supernatural thing. I mean, it grows up quickly. Nothing in the historical record says, well, back in those days in that particular region, there were vines that would spring up. And in six hours, you'd have a full-grown vine that could provide shade for a man. There's no record of anything like that. This is God at work. Somebody help me out here. This is God, and he's going to teach the prophet something about himself. And so this gourd comes up. And the next day, uh, uh, that day then, Jonah's looking around, and he sees this shade that is provided for his head. And this protection that God has given him. And the booth would have been a little lean-to thing that would have provided some shade during a certain part of the day, but not all of the day. And so God provided this gourd that would be a shadow and like a shade to Jonah for him to sit under in more comfort. And so look down in verse number 6. When the Lord prepared this gourd to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver, to deliver him from his grief. Look at this in verse 6. So Jonah, wa Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. Now, does it say he was happy about, this is nice? No, it doesn't say that's what he said. He is exceeding glad about the gourd. So if he is exceedingly displeased and he is very angry, what does that mean? There's a fervency about him. I'm talking about the guy loses it. He loses his temper and he is furious and he's kicking the dirt. He just can't understand why God would do this thing. And why didn't God do even accommodate me? I'm his servant. He, he, he forgives and saves this bunch of wicked heathen. Why does God do that? Okay. Now a gourd grows up to his pleasure and he is just the opposite he was back in verse number one. He is just as giddy as he can be. 
And check it out. No, you check it out yourself. When it talks about exceeding glad, it has to do with, we're talking about jumping around stuff. Something I can tell most of you don't feel like doing right now in any way, shape, or form. But nonetheless, that's where he was. I mean, he was excited about it. I believe he was up there pumping his fist. And he was looking for somebody to high five. And he was, yes, look at this. This gourd is wonderful. And I'm looking at this picture and I'm saying, isn't something wrong here? A servant of God just saw a revival of 120,000 people and he's fuming mad and a gourd grows over his little bald head and he's out of his mind happy about it. And there's something weird about this picture. You'd almost think his mental posture is all twisted around, isn't it? Sure it is. Yep. But God said, I'm not through with you, Jonah. He's over here pumping his fist in the air and saying, yes, like he just won the Super Bowl or something. And he's so excited about it. Yes. But God's still preparing stuff for Jonah. It took a lot of preparation to get Jonah where he's supposed to be. And God prepared a worm. Next day, the gourd's gone. Sun came up and there's no gourd. <laughs> and there's a vehement east wind. I mean, it's, it's, it's like the wind in Oklahoma coming down the plains. All the hot air comes up from Texas. You can say we be brethren all you want to. I still have issues with those Texans. But anyway, and the hot air comes up from Texas. And the uh, winter air comes down from the north. And it sweeps up and down the plains. I picked up a guy at the airport a while back in Oklahoma where the wind velocity is higher than the uh, windy city Chicago on an average. And I picked up a fella, and he had a cowboy hat on at the airport, and he's from up here in Oregon. And uh, he had this cowboy hat on, and it, the wind was just blowing something fierce. It was in the month of March, and I, he said to me, this is crazy. Does the wind blow like this all the time? I said, no, it doesn't blow like this all the time. It'll turn around tomorrow and blow from the north. I picked him up to take him back to the airport the next day. A northern front had come in. The temperature dropped about 25 degrees, and the north wind was blowing just as hard as it did down. And he said, how do you live here? How do you stand this? He couldn't handle the wind. Jonah has a vehement wind that's coming against him. And it's a miserable condition. And besides that, the gourd is gone. I want to die. No, look down in verse number 8. He's ready to die again. A city gets saved and he's so mad he wants to die. A gourd grows up, and the gourd is that God caused to grow up is the next day taken away, and this man says, that's it. Just take me out of here. It's not even worth living. Now, God asked him in verse 9, and we're going to put the finger on his problem here. God said to Jonah, doest thou well to be angry? For Are you amazed at the patience of God? Come on, if you and I had been the stead of God, we'd stood old Jonah up here and said, that's it. We'd have thumped him off the face of the earth, wouldn't we? But God says, doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Now, I want to stop right here. Because it becomes very evident that Jonah is a very selfish man. And if we want to know the specific nature of his attitude problem, here's what it is. His mental posture began and ended 
with concern about Jonah. Excuse me. Not about God, or he'd have never run to begin with. Not about the people of Nineveh, or he would have never been angry because of their repentance and their deliverance from sure destruction. Jonah's concern began and ended with himself. He was an exceeding selfish individual. The selfish man, like Jonah, says, God's will is less important than my will. What is God's will? God's will is that these men of Nineveh repent and be saved. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I just thought I might throw that in in case there's somebody snuck in this room that's got some of those tendencies leaning the way that it's not a whosoever will gospel. God is not God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so God's will was that these people repent of their sin and that he be in a position to deliver them and save them from their sin. And Jonah's attitude is, my will is more important than God's will. Now, friend, that's selfish. My comfort is more important than God's compassion. But Jonah, God just saved 120,000 people that would have gone to hell. Yeah, but look at me. I'm sitting out here among this bunch of heathen and I'm having this wind blow up on my head and it's hot and it's dusty and I hate the geography here and I want to go back to my own land. But your comfort is not as important as God's compassion. Unless you're selfish. And then your personal comfort is more important than God's compassion. Jonah, here's another thing about a selfish person. Jonah, I mean, you were just recently in the bottom of the ocean in the belly of a whale. Didn't God deliver you because he is gracious, merciful, kind, and slow to anger? Isn't that how you got out of that situation, Jonah? Well, it is. But I want that for myself. I just don't want that for people I don't like. No, I'm telling it right. That's exactly where he was. That's where he was. He was a selfish man. Here's a outstand, an outstanding characteristic of selfishness. And Jonah did it. And he shows it to us very clearly. I word it this way. He has pity on the petty and hate for the great. Now think about that a minute. What was the great? This deliverance of the city of Nineveh. That great city. And God delivered and God spared. And God saved that city. And Jonah disdained that. When we say hate, we're not always talking about the kind of hate that's grit your teeth, bitterness and such as that, although it manifests itself somewhat in Jonah's life. It's just talking about a detesting of or a disdain for. And what happened was utterly great by the grace of the great God that a city like Nineveh would be saved and forgiven of sin. And Jonah is furious about that. And so we can legitimately say that Jonah had hate for the great. But he had pity for the petty. And the petty had to do with his own personal comfort and it had to do with his own pleasure and that was the gourd that was growing over his head and when he was there, when it was there, he was exceeding glad and had great joy but when it was gone, he was back kicking the dirt furious mad again and saying, I'm ready to die. He had pity on the petty and hate for the great. And I wonder, 
as I go about and try to pastor the church God's given me to pastor. How often we are thrown off track by pity upon the petty, which is a sure sign of selfishness and little regard for the great. Can I tell you a couple little stories? Thank you. This happened. I mean, I preached a, a series through the book of Jonah at home. This happened right after the series. <laughs> I mean, to our church, I got up about majoring on the petty and uh, pity upon the petty and, uh, and, and little regard for the great. I mean, I just got through. And when I preached it, I wasn't nice like I am to you. I mean, I was smoking, snorting and stomping and preaching, you know, about majoring upon the petty things. And an individual in our church walks up to me after church that night with an old worn-out songbook. And the individual said, hand me the songbook and said, what do you think a visitor thinks about coming into church and seeing a songbook like this? I mean, it was ragged. It was bad. It was really bad. What do you think a visitor thinks when they come in and see this songbook? And I said, well, they probably say, well, that old book's heard a lot of singing. Something like that. <laughs> and I just tried to smile and be lighthearted about it. She said, well, I think it's a disgrace. I think it's a terrible thing. We, have a, we got visitors. You know, back here where this book was found, that's where a lot of our visitors come. They come in here, and what are they going to think about our church with this old songbook there? And I'm thinking, we just had a service that day where people were saved, but where others walked out unsaved. We just had a service that day where people followed the Lord in baptism. We just had a missionary present their field that particular night. I mean, we had some significant things that were taking place right there in our congregation, right before everybody's eyes. But it's like nothing good happened that day. Look at this songbook. That's what I mean by pity on the petty. Yeah. Okay, I'll tell you the other one. It's a, it's a Lulu. That's an old saying nobody knows anything about. But anyway, it's something else. I mean, I'm talking the next week. I walk in, two ladies say, you going to tell him? Now, this doesn't define our church. This is so unusual. It happened right after dealing with this particular passage. I'm talking about the next Sunday. You're going to tell him? You better believe it. And I said, okay, okay, what's on your mind? Well, pastor, I know you're not going to think this is a big deal, but I'm going to tell you something right now I think you need to pay attention to. <laughs> oh, I'm embarrassed to tell you. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah, well, uh, okay, what is it? It was before Sunday school on Sunday morning. And I said, well, what is it? Well, we have two ladies in the choir that wear hats. Okay. Okay, so what's the problem? It doesn't look right. It looks terrible. I said, You're, you are kidding. You're setting me up for something. No, Pastor, I was afraid you'd have that kind of attitude. Then actually, we got two ladies up there wearing hats. I, and, and it just doesn't look right. It's distracting. It doesn't look right. And I said, Well, then watch me. I'm up there singing away, and I help lead the singing. You know, so you can watch me or watch Brother Ted. He's up there leading the singing. No, I mean, just think about visitors. I want you to think about visitors coming in here and seeing those two ladies in hats. <laughs> so, well, I confess I hadn't spent a whole lot of time thinking about that. <laughs> what are you going to do? 
Well, next week I'll just put out a decree. All the ladies have to wear hats. No, that's not the answer. That's not the answer. Now, here's the thing. It's funny, and I laugh about it, and I've teased the dear souls about it. You know, and they're precious people. They are precious people. Just had a little lapse there, uh, pity upon the petty. Hold on just a second. But nobody's come up to me and said, I want to know something. Why aren't we doing more soul winning? Why isn't there more fasting going on in our church? Why is it we're not hearing more preaching on separation? Uh, why aren't we talking more about modesty? Why aren't we talking more about Hollywood? Why aren't we talking more about abortion? I'm not hearing that. Now, I do address those subjects, but I'm just saying, whenever there's a mentality or whenever there's an attitude, and some of you might be sitting here right now, and you may be a preacher, and you may be frustrated with your people. I'm going to tell you, it's not just church members that can get very small-minded. Preachers can get very small-minded. And you may be picking some of the folks and some of the saints of God and overlooking how God has worked in their life and saying they ought to do this and they ought to do that. And you're majoring on the petty instead of recognizing what God has done. You may be a member of this church or another church and it could be that you're crossways about something. It could be that the last few weeks you've gone to church just kind of sat there and said see if anybody can bless me here. I'm in no frame of mind to be blessed because of my mental posture. I'm sick and tired of this and I'm sick and tired of this and I'm sick and tired of another thing which has nothing to do with the everlasting destiny of the lost soul or righteousness and holiness. See? And that's precisely where Jonah was. He 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 had pity on the petty, and he had hate for the great. Small-minded selfishness. Now, let me just tell you what God's, I, I believe God's telling us here. In this account, God is showing, after sparing Nineveh, he is showing Jonah that he is frustrated and angry because he is selfish. And he is in as much need of repentance over his ungodly selfishness as Nineveh was, Nineveh was for all their depravity. I believe that's what he's saying. And God goes to lengths here to show this to Jonah. God, it's like you might be saying, let me show you how ugly selfishness is. Let me show you how ungodly selfishness is. Jonah, did the people of Nineveh need to repent? Yes, they did. But nobody in Nineveh was in more need of repentance than the prophet that preached to Nineveh. Now, I major on this, and I make it a major point, because... God is not interested that we're just going about doing what we're supposed to do. God's not just interested that I get a sermon and stand up and preach. God is very concerned about the disposition with which I speak for Him in preaching His Word. And God loves the sheep. He still does. I said God loves the sheep. Jesus loves His sheep. He calls them by name. And He knows exactly who they are and where they are and what their needs are. And He is not pleased 
when I am so distraught with them because they make my life uncomfortable when all the while he has already taught me in his word. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be patient, gentle, apt to teach, and meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. God's very interested in the disposition with which we carry out his will. Now in verse 5, I'm going to conclude with this. I want to show you in verse number 5, there are three symptoms of the selfish soul. Look at verse 5. This isn't the main body of the message. I'm just going to show you something here. Jonah went out of the city. Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. If you want to write something margin in your Bible, write this. He quit. The selfish person quits. No, I mean, we just had it happen. We have a good-sized Sunday school and everything. Somebody comes up and says, I'm quitting the department. I'm quitting my class. Uh, well, you've prayed about this. You saw it. Well, I just don't like the way that the head of the department is doing things. I don't think he's treated me with proper respect. I'm quitting. Selfish. Somebody said, well, I don't know where you get that he quit. He just went outside the city. Well, let me tell you where I get that. I can tell you where God told him to go into the city. I can't find where God told him to go out of the city. It's not in there. Well, I mean, they'd already repented. What was he supposed to do? Well, I could think of a couple of things. How about a two or three follow-up sermons? on following God and obedience and the expectations of God and what it takes to live for God and be right with God. Or how about this? How about just staying there and rejoicing with Him a while? I mean, a whole city, 120,000 people got saved and God used you as a preacher. Why not just stay there and rejoice with them a while and lift your hands to God and thank Him that He not only shows you mercy, but He's a merciful God. And there's no respect of persons with God. But He quit. You may want to fuss with me about it, but I'm doing the preaching. He quit. <laughs> and he quit because he was selfish. God failed his expectations. I'm out of here. Well, where are you going? I'm going to go outside the city, see if God won't change his mind again and wipe this place out. So he did. And he quit. He quit. Twelve Sundays are left now till I'm no longer the pastor of Southwest Baptist Church. We called a new pastor last May the 2nd, last May the 3rd rather, and he becomes the pastor. He's been on staff for six and a half years and he becomes the pastor on May the 3rd. And that's my 20th anniversary. I'm no longer the pastor of Southwest Baptist Church after that Sunday. <clears throat> but I'm not quitting. <laughs> oh no, I'm not quitting. Now, you're quitting, uh, you're quitting the pastorate. I'm not quitting the pastorate. If God had said to Jonah, now you remove yourself from the city of Nineveh and you go do anything else, when Jonah left, he wouldn't have been a quitter. But he never heard anything from God about moving on and setting up there. This wasn't God's leadership. Go set up on the mountain, see if I might change my mind again and destroy this city. This God wasn't in that. So he made his own decision to depart from what God told him to do and he went and did what he wanted to do. He quit. He quit on God. I wonder if there's somebody in here tonight. You may still have the title as pastor. I'm not, I'm not trying to rail on anybody. I'm just posing the question, is it possible? Because I believe I've seen men stay in the pulpit that have quit. I believe that's the case. 
Now, they've held the position as pastor. They've continued to go to the pulpit. They've continued to open the Bible. But the passion is not there. The fervor is not there. The conviction is not there. The Holy Ghost unction isn't there. Why? Well, because they went through some difficulties. They went through some hard times. And they weren't going to just run and get out of the ministry. They kept the pulpit, but they toned down the preaching. And they lost the passion. They lost the zeal. They lost the desire. And they have stayed there, but they have quit while they stand in the pulpit. I wonder if there's any members of this church that used to be a soul winner, but you're not anymore. You quit. I'm not accusing. I'm just asking. Is that a possibility? I wonder if there's somebody that used to hold some high personal standards of separation and holiness in your life. But ridicule or the indifference of others or the disappointment in others. You've quit. Now it's just whatever. That's selfish. I said it's selfish. That's selfishness at work. Pity on the petty, which could be, in this case, self. Look at the second thing Jonah did. goes right along with it. And there made him a booth and set under it in the shadow. Stop right there. He built himself a shelter. He built a shelter. He's going to protect himself. I've been down there and I preached those people and uh, God disappointed my expectations. I wanted to see that whole city destroyed. I know their history and I know their past and I know their continual threat to my people, Israel, and I wanted them destroyed, but God didn't meet my expectations. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go up here and I'm going to, from now on, I'm looking after me. And he went outside that city and he built him a shelter. And now it's about protecting himself while the posture of God is saying, come unto me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. While the disposition and the posture of God is come and drink, and come and be saved, and come and believe, while God's arms are open wide to whosoever will to be saved. Here's God's servant. God's like this. And Jonah's like this. Build him a shelter, and he's going to protect himself. You cannot follow Jesus from a shelter. You can't follow Jesus from a shelter. You can't become of the disposition to where since I've been hurt, since my family has been hurt, since I've been disappointed, and by the way, all bitterness and anger ultimately goes back towards God. You may think you're just mad at that individual or you may think that you're mad at that group of people or you may think that you're disturbed with some element in the congregation or some element in the service of serving the Lord. You may think your disposition is just against them. But ultimately, all acts of bitterness and resentment have to do with an offense to God. And basically, it is saying, God, you could have done something about this and you did not. And you failed my expectations. Now, if that's the way it's going to be, I'm going to build me a shelter. And from now on, my Christian life is going to be lived in this shelter that I've built. You can do that. But you won't follow Jesus from a shelter. I believe I need to say that louder. I'm not sure folks in the back are hearing me tonight. You can't follow Jesus from a shelter. 
You can't go into a mode of self-protection and at the same time be his servant. You cannot protect yourself from harm and hurt and disappointment. You can't gather yours over here in a little corner and make sure nobody touches them and nobody offends them and nobody disappoints them and nobody hurts them. You can do that, but you can't follow Jesus while you're doing that. Because he's the one that said, if any man will be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Cross always has to do with suffering. And it always has to do with sacrifice. Let him take up his cross and follow me. And the third thing about Jonah, that characteristic of a selfish person, is not only did he quit, built him a shelter for self-protection. But he sat down till he might see what would happen. <coughs> Can I have your attention? He became a spectator. He became a spectator. <coughs> At Southwest Baptist Church, partly because of the Bible college, partly because of other reasons, we have like 26 former pastors in our church. 26. Now, two or three have retired after and still are faithful to God and serve the Lord, but they've retired from pastoring and traveling and all of that. And a couple of them are on our church staff, and some are in related to college work. But you know what a good percentage of them are? Spectators. They come to church, they're not going to get out of church. But they're spectators. Mere spectators. They come and they sit down. They observe the goings on in the service. And they leave. And they're, they're a spectator. And we've got some members that have been members of Southwest Baptist Church. is 50, going on 59 years old. And so it's got a, a good testimony and a good history there in Oklahoma City. And, and, and yet we have members that have been there a good many years that the preacher let them down or somebody disappointed them. And they haven't stopped going to church. They don't want to be a bad example to their kids or their grandkids, things like that. They're still there but they are no more than spectators. Still have gifts, years of experience, at a time in life where they could make a difference. Make a difference. And they're sitting down to see. We'll see what happens here. And I want to repeat something. This story isn't so we might have a good time beaten up on Jonah. In fact, we don't even know how the story ends. It just, it, the last verse doesn't even sound like the ending of a story about a man's life. Maybe it's because God meant for you to finish the story. For me to look at this account and say, son, how are you going to finish the story? Jonah is long gone and his history is settled. But son, are you going to quit? Are you going to pity the petty and have little regard for what I deem great? 
Are you going to quit? Are you going to say, well, I've been disappointed because I don't think people appreciated me and I served and I worked and I did this and this happened and that happened and it just doesn't seem like it's been worth it all. And I'm just going to, I'm going to still go to church, but I'm just going to shelter myself from any further disappointments. Anybody here like that tonight? God's speaking to you. That's selfishness. I'm sure I could have found a kinder word, but it's selfishness. I don't think I could find a more true word. Jonah was a selfish man. And if you look at this and you see anything of yourself there, it's not because God isn't merciful, God isn't long-suffering, God is not just, and God is not righteous. It's not because of somebody else. Nobody can stop you from loving God. Nobody can keep you from following Jesus. You're selfish. And no matter what the sin is, we know how to deal with sin, don't we? A man is over here and he's living in adultery and we're saying to him, you need to get right, man. You can't live like that. You need, what, do, what do I do? You confess your sin and you turn from it. Another guy's over here and he's doing drugs. You need Christ. You need the power of Jesus in your life. And you need to turn from this. You need to repent. Be like John the Baptist coming and preaching. And he told this crowd, you repent of this and you repent of that and you repent of that. Well, if our sin is selfishness and it's made us a spectator and we've quit and we're majoring upon the minor and having pity upon the petty and just having little regard for that which is truly great by the measurement of God, what should we do? Come before God and confess our selfish ways. And repent of our selfishness. That's how it's to be dealt with. That's how it must be dealt with. Maybe there's somebody tonight just needs some provocation. Get back in the action. Come out of your shelter and follow Jesus and serve the Lord. And quit being a spectator. Get back in the action.